best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Beer with Blue Marble Space. My name is Jacob Huck Misser. I'm a research scientist with the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. This is our monthly podcast seminar series that features friends and members of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science, uh, discussions about philosophy, science, and um, just general topics of interest. If you'd like to learn more about our institute, you can check us out online at www.bmsis.org. And you can uh, listen to past episodes of our podcast on iTunes, or on bmsis.org slash podcast. So we got a great show for you today. We have Professor Jim Casting from Penn State. Uh, but first, to kick things off, we have uh, Brendan Newland, who is going to uh, introduce us to a new beverage. So Brendan, please. Well, thanks, Jacob. It's actually Brendan Mullen, but that's OK. Well, fall is in the air right now, so I thought it'd be time for a seasonally appropriate beverage, which is why I chose the Dogfish Head Pumpkin Ale. And I'm not saying pumpkin like an idiot. I'm actually saying pumpkin with a K, P-U-N-K-I-N. So that's a seasonally appropriate pumpkin-flavored ale from Milton, Delaware. That's Dogfish Head, 7% ABV, but 100% delightful. So today, I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Jim Casting at Penn State, an Evan Pugh professor in the Geosciences Department. He has had a long and storied career he has uh, obtained a bachelor's degree from Harvard in chemistry and physics. He got his master's at the University of Michigan in physics and another master's at the same university in atmospheric science. He also obtained his PhD at the University of Michigan, also in atmospheric science. Since then, he's worked at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, the, the uh, NASA Ames Research Center, and at Penn State, where he currently resides. In the process, he's written several books, more scholarly articles than you can shake a stick at or swing a dead cat at or whatever kind of analogy you want to use. He's also been the co-chair of NASA's Terrestrial Planet Finder Coronagraph in 2005 to 2006, which, as we all remember, was sadly canceled in 2011 because we just can't have nice things, apparently. His research interests include atmospheric evolution, planetary atmospheres, and paleoclimates, or ancient climates. And of course, we all remember him for his work with habitable zones, specifically his very shaped our thinking in including geological pathways and processes that might affect planetary climates and allow liquid water to exist on their surfaces. So the title of his talk today is, Is the Earth Rare? Jim Casting from Penn State, are we special snowflakes, yes or no? Okay, th thanks, Brendan and Jacob, for inviting me to speak. And what I'm going to do is try to spend a little bit of time talking about what we do in my research group here at Penn State. About half my research group, or former research group, are on this telecon here. So uh, Ramses Ramirez and Ravi Kaparapu and Meg Smith and Jacob was also my graduate student. So, uh, so we have good representation from the casting research group. What, what we're all interested in is the possibility of life on not just off the Earth, but on planets around other stars. So looking for other Earth-like planets and then for remote evidence of life by searching those planets' atmospheres spectroscopically. 
Brendan mentioned that seven or eight years ago now, I was involved with the TPFC Working Group Terrestrial Planet Finder Coronagraph. So that was a big multi-billion dollar planned space telescope that would have tried to do direct imaging on uh, to find Earth-like planets around nearby stars and take spectra of their atmospheres. And as Brendan already mentioned, that uh, telescope is now not going anywhere in the near term. It was actually canceled back in 2006. So that's been seven years now. But we're all confident that it will come back at some point, maybe when first the government has to come back and then the economy needs to come back. And, uh, and JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, needs to fly because that's also a big mission and, and there won't be any big missions planned, I'm convinced, until after JWST gets up there in, in orbit. So in the, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna spend my whole time talking about TPF because I, I don't like talking about things that are indefinitely delayed, but I will talk a little bit about why we're optimistic uh, about TPF I should say that I, when I, I worked at NASA Ames before I came to Penn State, and the person that brought me out there was Jim Pollock, who some of you may uh, have known. He passed away 10 or 15 years ago now, but he was Carl Sagan's first graduate student. And I went out there to learn about runaway greenhouse atmospheres from him. Both Jim and Carl were very optimistic about the chances of life elsewhere in the universe. And of course, Sagan did the most of any astronomer in our generation uh, to, to publicize uh, this idea. There are pessimists, though, out there. And if you uh, do people have, if you've got access to my slide there, I there's a slide that says uh, it's titled, Is the Earth Rare? There was a book written in 2000 by Peter Ward and Don Brownlee called Rare Earth. Ward and Brownlee are out at University of Washington. Peter Ward is a paleontologist. Don Brownlee is a, a very well-known astronomer. Some of you may recognize his name because the, the dust that, we, that NASA collects from the stratosphere that comes in from uh, interplanetary dust particles from space is sometimes called Brownlee dust because Don has done a lot of work in, in collecting and characterizing those particles. At any rate, uh, they, they wrote this book in 2000 uh, called Rare Earth, and it's sort of, it, it sold a lot of copies. It, it got a lot of attention, partly because it's, it's essentially the anti-Carl Sagan book. Sagan wrote Cosmos and uh, several other books, and he, he was the optimist, and they're pessimists. So th their argument there is not actually that Earths are rare, but that complex life is rare. And they define complex life basically as animal life. But of course, animal life includes humans. And so this argument, if it was correct, implies that uh, the chances of finding extraterrestrial civilizations out there, ETI, uh, are very slim. Of course, that's what Carl Sagan was really interested in. He was interested in, in extraterrestrial intelligent life. So there's a, there's a list of arguments in rare earth uh, that are uh, I've put on this slide here. I propose not to go through that uh, in my little dialogue. You know, if you find some of these that look particularly interesting, then we can raise those in the question and answer session and uh, talk about them. But let me just say basically why we're optimistic 
we're com computer modelers in my group. And we one of the things we do is try to model the width of the habitable zone around the sun. We define that as the region where a planet can support liquid water on its surface so you could have a thriving uh, bi biosphere supported by sunlight. Uh, there's a chance that it could develop oxygenic photosynthesis as happened here on Earth. And that's actually a requirement for complex life because it's very difficult for me to imagine how you would get plants or animals, multicellular plants or animals, without having uh, lots of oxygen in the atmosphere. So the reason we're optimistic is that when we do these habitable zone calculations, we calculate that the habitable zone is actually pretty wide. It goes in our own so solar system from slightly inside the Earth's orbit. The Earth is at 1 AU. So for somewhere inside, we don't know exactly where the inner edge, but let's say at roughly 0.95 AU. But it goes well out uh, farther in the solar system uh, beyond Mars orbit. Mars is at 1.52 AU, and we think that the outer edge of the habitable zone is at, at least 1.6 or 1.7 astronomical units. Uh, the reason that the habitable zone is wide is because there's a feedback in the, in the Earth's climate system. One of the important greenhouse gases on Earth, or I should say the two important greenhouse gases are water, vapor, and carbon dioxide. Uh, carbon dioxide, water vapor is a feedback because it's near its co condensation temperature. The carbon dioxide concentration is controlled by the carbon cycle, but on long time scales, it's especially by what we call the inorganic carbon cycle or carbonate silicate cycle. CO2 comes out of volcanoes and it gets consumed by weathering silicate minerals on the land, followed by depositing carbonates in the ocean. And the argument for a long time has been that if the climate got too cold so that the water froze, then uh, you'd, you'd lose the loss process for CO2. So volcanic CO2 would build up in the atmosphere and give you a big, big enough greenhouse effect to melt the ice. So the bottom line is that that pushes the outer edge of the habitable zone well out past the orbit of Mars. NASA has had a satellite up for four years trying to look for planets in the habitable zones of their stars. The satellite spacecraft is called Kepler. It uh, is now out of operation because it lost one of its critical reaction wheels back in May, I think it was, May or June. But it has four years of data. It's being used or has been used and it's still being used to look for transits of Earth-sized planets around different types of stars. And the, the good news is, is that planets like the Earth seem to be fairly frequent around the later type stars, the red dwarfs, late K and M stars. The, uh, there's a parameter called Aetis of Earth, the frequency of planets around such stars that are in the habitable zone and, and that are rocky. Aetis of Earth for M stars is in the range of 0.4 to 0.6, according to published analyses. People are still working on the Kepler data. Uh, you, you have to use all four years of data to find Earths in the habitable zones of sun-like stars, FGK stars. But we're pretty confident that Aetis of Earth will be you know, on the order of a few tenths, which means that maybe 20 or 30% of stars out there may harbor a potentially habitable planet. And so that's really why we're optimists. There are a lot of other things that you need to make a planet habitable besides being in habitable zone. And some of those are on this list uh, on the slide. 
So maybe I should quit talking there and I'd be happy to take questions either on what I said or what's written down for the rare earth arguments. Oh, and one more thing. I forgot to give a pitch for my book. I wrote a book on this uh, in 2010 when TPFC got shut down in 2006. I wondered what could I do to try to speed it back up. And I said, I'll write a book about this. So uh, the book is entitled How to Find a Habitable Planet. It's a takeoff on a book by Wally Broker, which was written 25 years earlier, which was titled How to Build a Habitable Planet. But that's really, uh, there's a more, you know, Everything I just told you is told in more detail in that book. Okay, so why don't I stop and take questions? All right, well, thanks so much, Jim. Yeah, does anybody have a, a question for him? Julia typed her question in. She asks, why is the sun anomalously metal rich? Oh, okay. So the, the sun is not anomalously metal rich. That's an argument that was made in rare earth. It was based on some studies that done by an astronomer named Guillermo Gonzalez, who was originally at University of Washington. And uh, Gonzalez looked at stars in the solar neighborhood. He looked at all stars. And uh, as the astronomers amongst you already know, most stars are M stars. They're small, much smaller than the sun. Uh, and M stars don't evolve very fast. They're, they have lifetimes longer than the age of the universe. So most M stars are, are older than the sun, which means they were formed back earlier in galactic history when the, the galaxy itself was less metal rich. So the sun is metal rich compared to average M stars, but if you compare the sun to other solar-like stars, it's actually pretty middle of the road. Could you remind our listeners why oxygen is a requirement for complex life? Sure. So the, uh, the argument, if you look at biochemistry, and I'm not going to claim I'm a good biochemist, but I know just enough to get by, you know, organisms like us, plants and animals, get their energy from respiration. So respiration is when you combine O2 and organic matter to, to form CO2 and water. And respiration, so we call that breathing, but you know, it's not just animals that breathe, plants do respiration, algae do respiration, all eukaryotic, almost all eukaryotic life, eukaryotes are organisms with cell nuclei, rely on respiration for producing energy. And if you don't rely on, uh, there are organisms that don't rely on respiration. Some bacteria get by with fermentation, which is what, what you also use to make that beer that Brendan was uh, publicizing at the beginning. Other organisms uh, use sulfate reduction. They use sulfate in the oceans and combine that with organic matter and marine sediments. But those other energy metabolisms are at least 10 or 15 times less energy efficient than respiration. You can operate single-celled organisms on these other uh, energy sources, but it would be very difficult to operate a, a multicellular plant or animal. So any extraterrestrial civilizations that we encounter will breathe oxygen? That's my prediction. I, I was a huge science fiction fan growing up, and science fiction writers have great imaginations, but in reality, I think that, uh, that it will be oxygen that the aliens will breathe. 
So, Jim, I actually have a follow-up question to that. Uh, on Earth, we suspect, as, as you well know, uh, that there was a rise in oxygen, although some people claim that oxygen was always high on Earth's history. Uh, do you think that a planet needs to go through a transition period of no oxygen to high oxygen in order to develop complex life? That is, if a planet starts with high oxygen, its whole history, do you think that might prevent the development of complex life? I think that if, if a planet started with high oxygen, it wouldn't just prevent complex life, it would prevent life. Because, uh, you know, if you want to do prebiotic synthesis, start life from simple chemicals, oxygen is a poison at that stage in, in chemical evolution. So it's a good thing that the early Earth was reduced. But I think that's not a reason for pessimism because most planets are going to start out reduced just because the materials that condense out of a, a stellar nebula, the solar nebula or the nebula around another star are themselves reduced. You get a lot, it's not just silicate minerals, but you get a lot of iron. And so it's, it's highly reduced to begin with. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so we have a question from Zach Adam. He asks, can you talk a little bit about why nitrogen might not be abundant if life is not present? I thought nitrogen was mostly inert and settled out during planetary accretion and subsequent outgassing. Sure. Uh, this, this is actually not an argument from rare earth. It's, uh, there's another book that is not plugged on this slide. Uh, another theory for what keeps the earth habitable is called the Gaia hypothesis that was developed by Jim Lovelick and, and Lynn Margulis. Jim Lovelick has written seven or eight books about Gaia and at least in his early books, he, he had an argument about uh, nitrogen. He said that if it wasn't for life on the Earth, Earth's atmosphere would not contain nitrogen. And why is that? Well, it's because it, it's always being converted to nitrate, uh, partly by uh, organisms who, uh, who, are, who do nitrogen fixation, but also just by lightning. You know, if you have a lightning bolt and an N2O2 atmosphere, you make uh, NO, at high temperatures, nitric oxide, and then that gets oxidized to uh, nitrate, and that goes into the oceans and, and would accumulate there. So, so Lovelick's argument in, uh, was that in order to keep the nitrogen as N2 and not as nitrate in the oceans, you needed denitrifying bacteria to take it back out. I think that's not correct because you know the uh, seawater is always cycling through the mid-ocean ridges uh, as a result of plate tectonics. There are these hydrothermal circulation systems. And we, we showed in a paper on habitable zones 20 years ago that that process alone would convert the, uh, the nitrate back to either N2 or ammonia, and the ammonia would get photolyzed back to N2. So even on a, on a totally abiotic Earth, the, the stable form of nitrogen is N2. Jim, there was a recent paper about rocks, oxidized rocks, South Africa that pushes back the great oxidation event from 2.4 sort of back in time. What were your thoughts on that? Uh, we're thinking about this is a paper by Sean Crow and colleagues. If it's the, if it's the one that you're thinking about, it came out in Nature about a week and a half ago. Crow is part of Don Canfield's group over in our Denmark. They're very very good geochemists. Canfield is widely respected, so we're paying attention to this paper. The, the argument is based on chromium isotopes, and uh, I don't think I will go through the whole technical details on it. Chromium 
isotopes get fractionated depending on how oxidized the environment is. What, what they say in it, though, is it doesn't mean that the great oxidation event happened earlier. It means there were traces of oxygen in the atmosphere at 3 billion years ago, if they're correct, whereas the atmosphere itself, the great oxidation event, happened over half a billion years later than that, somewhere around 2.4 billion years ago. It's not impossible. I mean, one idea is that oxygen went up and then went back down. It may have gone up multiple times, but only for short time periods. See, the, the difficult thing is that there are other oxygen indicators like sulfur isotopes and also detrital reduced minerals like pyrite and uraninite that indicate that oxygen wasn't that high prior to the GOE, the great oxidation event. So it's a real puzzle right now. All right, great. Uh, Zach actually posted a, a follow-up thought. He just said, thanks for the N2 question and answer. He said, it's interesting to ponder an inversion of redox condition, emergence in restricted and reduced environments, and subsequent radiation into O2-rich environments. Not really a question, just a thought. I think Zach, uh, in part of his research, thinks about some of these evolutionary considerations. I actually had a, another follow-up question. So in answering the question whether or not the Earth is rare, we want to fly TPF. We want to you know, get what we can out of JWST. Even if we find a set of biosignatures that shows us a planet that looks a lot like Earth, I mean, what's going to convince you and the community that we've really found uh, a, a twin Earth? I mean, to me, it almost seems like you have to do something like SETI or send a probe to make in situ observations to really convince yourself that the Earth is not rare. Well, that's a good question. So, you know, what we're mostly relying on is the general name is biomarker gases, gases in a planet's atmosphere that we think are produced by life. The best biomarker is actually a combination of gases, but the simultaneous presence of either oxygen or ozone, which are oxidized, and methane or nitrous oxide, which are reduced. So that these gases, like methane and oxygen are both present. Well, oxygen's present at easily detectable levels in Earth's atmosphere. Methane would be harder to detect. But if you could see them both, there's something like 30 or 40 orders of magnitude out of thermodynamic equilibrium. They're both produced primarily by biology. And so it's very difficult to think of how you would get uh, oxygen and methane coexisting at high concentrations without life. That criterion, by the way, was suggested by Jim Lovelock, the author of the Gaia Hypothesis. He used that, he was part of the Viking team, the Viking lander team, along with Carl Sagan, and he used that as an argument at the time that Mars did not have life because he uh, said that Mars did not have methane and oxygen in its atmosphere, therefore it didn't have life. Uh, you know, NASA rightly didn't pay attention to that argument, but uh, the converse of it, if, if you do see those gases, uh, the converse is, is, I think, pretty strong evidence for life if you do see them. So let's say you did find, we, we found a planet that had Earth-like biomarkers um, that was pretty convincing uh, of, of some sort of biology, and then SETI, the SETI program follows up and finds no radio signals. I mean, would you kind of interpret that to be a microbial world or a, just a non-technical world? Or what would yeah, you well, think would be the most likely follow-up we should do on a, on a positive biosignature? You know, I, I'm a big fan of SETI, but uh, the reason we started doing SETI before 
we did TPF is that it's much easier to do SETI than it is to do TPF. You know, it's easier to build a radio telescope than it is to build a coronagraph that can distinguish a, a very dim planet very close to a bright star. But, you know, if they were equally difficult, you know, I would argue you want to do TPF first because you have to first go through the microbial stage before you ever get to complex life, much less intelligent life. And we, we, don't, we don't even know how often life originates, much less how, how often it goes through these, to these higher stages. I think probably this audience, everybody's, I would guess, familiar with the Drake equation. Uh, which Carl Sagan used to like to call the Sagan-Drake equation. In the Drake equation, the, the number of communicating intelligent civilizations is a product of seven factors, and any one of them could actually be a, a really difficult hurdle. So that, you know, in Rare Earth, that, you know, part of that book is basically going through various Drake equation factors and, and figuring out, of course, they come up with reasons for why they might all be tiny. So it's much more likely, I think, that we'll find, you know, there's probably a lot more microbial worlds than there are worlds with intelligent civilizations. To follow up on that, what are your thoughts on extant microbial life on Mars, Europa, Enceladus, or perhaps even Titan? So I'm, I'm on the fence on Mars. I think it's 50-50. You know, the, the chances of finding viable life anywhere near the Martian surface, I would say, is is vanishingly low. So, the, you know, we, we send missions up there or NASA sends missions up there and they scrape down now a, a meter or so into the soil. You're not going to find life up there because it's way too cold and there's lots of oxidants in the atmosphere, photochemically produced oxidants. There's perchlorates in the soil. It's a highly toxic uh, environment. But early Mars was different. Uh, looks like it was warm and wet. Uh, life could have evolved there. If so, it may well probably would have colonized the deep subsurface. And all the models predict that it gets warm as you go down. There's probably liquid water at some point. So there could well be organisms living down at, you know, say one or two kilometers depth within the Martian surface. They're hard to find, right? So to if, if that's where Martian life is, you got to go there uh, and do deep drilling, and that takes astronauts. And you know, we think TPF is a lot easier to do than that than that project. As for Titan and Europa, I'm actually very pessimistic about both of those. Europa, the, the chances for life are you know often overstated. Yes, there's almost certainly a subsurface liquid ocean, or you know, possibly some water ammonia mixture. But that's not the big issue. The big issue is free energy. Life needs a free energy gradient to drive metabolism. And you always had that on the Earth because the Earth is an open system. It, you get reduced materials coming out of the interior and you have hydrogen escaping to space. So the atmosphere and, and ocean were always more, oxid, more oxidized than the materials coming out of hydrothermal vents. And, uh, you know, organisms... That's my best guess as to how life got started on Earth. It tapped that free energy gradient in the vents. But you know, in, on Europa, those vent fluids are capped up beneath the ocean. There's no oxidants. Now, Chris Chiba has written papers saying that you produce photochemical oxidants on Europa's icy surface from charged particle bombardment. And every few 
millions of years, the ice overturns, maybe because of an impact. So you bring some uh, amount of oxidants down into the ocean, but that's a pitifully small source of redox potential. So, th so that's my argument against Europa. For Titan, you know, it's not liquid water, it's liquid methane. That may well be a problem, but an even worse problem is the low temperatures. It's, uh, what is it, 93 Kelvin at the surface. Chemical reactions are really slow at 93 Kelvin. And so any kind of chemistry that you can imagine would be so slow that I, I think it would be insufficient to fuel an organism. Uh, we have a question from uh, Meg Smith. She says, uh, does the animal habitable zone refer to the temperature limits of animal life or some other factor? Yes, uh, so, so the animal habitable zone, remember that Warden Brownlee's argument is about complex life, which they define as animals. And they say that animal, the animal habitable zone is temperatures of zero to 50 degrees Celsius. And then they compare that to the, what they, their idea of the regular habitable zone, which is zero to 100 degrees Celsius, according to them. But that's actually incorrect. As my students all know, the inner edge of the habitable zone is defined by the moist greenhouse when the stratosphere becomes wet. And in our models, if you have a one bar background atmosphere, the stratosphere starts to become wet at about uh, 340 uh, Celsius, 340 Kelvin, which is about 70 Celsius. So actually the, uh, the animal habitable zone and our definition of the habitable zone are pretty close to correct, uh, the same. So, so it's just not a, a valid argument. Uh, Julia Demarandius actually has a comment uh, question about the Titan issue, saying that there's evidence of a subsurface ocean on Titan as well. Does that impact your assessment of its habitability? Well, you would have the same prob problem with the subsurface ocean on Titan. It would be tens of kilometers beneath the surface. There's no free energy gradient there to speak of. Also, you know, how do you find it? You'd, you'd have to go to Titan and do extremely deep drilling into the moon's crust so it's not detectable, right? But I think that, you know, the basic argument against it is free energy. I don't, I don't see a free energy gradient on either of those bodies. Well, all right, thanks. Does anyone have any uh, final questions for Jim? What about Enceladus? Enceladus has volcanism. It's got this, you know, hot spot where uh, materials coming out. I actually don't understand the source of the heating on Enceladus. So there's liquid, liquid water at, uh, and it's being ejected through these plumes. I think it's very unlikely that life would evolve on Enceladus. It's not absolutely impossible. I think that the reason people are excited about it is because it's much easier to sample than either Titan or Europa, because all you really have to do is fly through the plume and collect gases. So it's, it's a long shot, but it, you know, it could, could be a big payoff. I actually have one uh, question about JWST. I'm, it's kind of unclear to me exactly like how much are we going to be able to learn about habitability from JWST? Well, that's a good question. And believe me, the JWST team has been thinking about it very hard. I heard a talk by Jeff Valenti two or three years ago on exactly that subject. He's at, Jeff is at Space Telescope Institute, and he gave an talk in the astronomy department here at Penn State. And his argument is that JWST just may be able to do transit spectra if they, uh, on an Earth-like planet 
going around uh, an M star. Uh, you can't do it on any of the known transiting systems. You'd have to find a nearby M star that had a transiting planet. So you, you may know that's what NASA's test satellite is supposed to look for. So TESS is going to go up there and look for those systems. And then the, the, the atmosphere that Valente th thought they could characterize was one that extended up to uh, 150 kilometers, the troposphere, sort of one of our moist greenhouse uh, atmospheres or runaway greenhouse atmospheres. And that's actually not a habitable planet. So he didn't, he didn't claim that they could see a true Earth analog or take spectra of a true Earth analog with JWST. So I, I don't think it will answer the question. I think we'll have to wait for TPF. Okay, and unfortunately with this government shutdown, we might have to wait even longer for that. Uh, Julia also mentions in the chat box, she's heard of ongoing studies about coronagraphs and starshades uh, that may be used for JWST. Have you heard of that? And might we be able to suppress some of the starlight to better characterize planets with JWST? Well, um, starshades are a really good idea. So there's for TPF now, there's, there's two flavors. There's actually three flavors of TPF. One's in the infrared, but there's two optical flavors. One is TPFC, where you've got an internal coronagraph. The C is for coronagraph. The other is now called TPFO. The O is for occulter. And occulter is a star shade. It's a big disk, or maybe it looks more like a flower that flies 50,000 kilometers from the telescope and you just basically put it in front of the star and block out the light. Now, you could, in theory, fly an occulter with JWST. It was proposed, but it was nixed because uh, that would have, you know, JWST was already over cost. That would have added another billion dollars at least to its cost. Nobody wanted to do that. And further, you know, now it's not going to happen because JWST is not serviceable. It's only got a five to 10 year lifetime. And so it's too late by this point to add an occulter to it. All right. Well, Jim, uh, thanks once again. This was a fascinating conversation. I think we all enjoyed this a lot. Um, and listeners, uh, remember, you can tune in next month for our next installment of Beer with Blue Marble Space. See you later. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.